Corinthians today. We took a, we took a big break. I, I decided to pull away from working paragraph by paragraph through the book of 1 Corinthians, which we started like uh, maybe almost a year and a half ago. And we are now in chapter 12. We broke for about seven or eight weeks. We went through the Advent. Actually, we started Thanksgiving. So starting at Thanksgiving, we, we just kind of jumped into a series of basically topical sermons. And we're coming back to 1 Corinthians today. And we're entering a new section, chapters 12 to 14. And the topic is spiritual gifts, which is really going to be, I think, an interesting and, and, and hopefully enjoyable, maybe even fun a uh, few chapters to study. And I thought that maybe it would be helpful to just kind of give some very basic introductory comments about spiritual gifts and, and how we think of spiritual gifts uh, as a leadership team here at New Hope, uh, just to kind of set the tone. So if you've gone through our DNA class, you may have heard some of this already, but a lot of us haven't gone through that class since we just like invented it recently. So spiritual gifts, I mean, the reality is that this is a topic over, uh, over which there's a lot of, uh, I'm going to, I'll say the word controversy. I, I really don't want to toss it out with that kind of flavor. Maybe I'll just say difference of opinion on this topic or difference of interpretations on this topic. You're probably well aware of this. But when it comes to spiritual gifts, maybe we'll just start with some common ground and say that most every Bible teaching church agrees that the Holy Spirit has given the church a variety of gifts that are known as the spiritual gifts. That's not a very controversial statement. The difference of opinion or the difference of interpretation, the controversy arises when we talk about what we might call the miraculous gifts, things like prophecy or the gift of tongues or miraculous healings. And the controversy can be distilled into two basic positions. One is known as cessationism and one is known as continuationism. Cessationism is the belief that the miraculous gifts, prophecy, tongues, uh, miraculous healings, that those miraculous gifts have ceased. And there are various reasons for why people believe that, but one of the most popular reasons is is, is the belief that the miraculous gifts were given for a certain period of time to validate the apostles and their message. And so you've got some passages that indicate that type of thing. Now that the apostles have died, now that the canon of Scripture is closed, those gifts, the position says, have ceased. Cessationism. Now, continuationism is the belief that the miraculous gifts did not cease with the death of the apostles, nor did the miraculous gifts cease with the close of the canon. And those gifts, therefore, are still granted by God to the church and useful today. Continuationism. Cessationism, continuationism. Now, this kind of oversimplifies the situation because within each of those two positions, there's a wide spectrum of nuances and beliefs. But I think it's still fair to say that at the end of the day, the nub of the issue is whether or not the miraculous gifts are still in use today. Does that make sense? I think that's, I think that's pretty fair. Now, where are we? Where's New Hope Fellowship? And when I say that, what I mean is, <clears throat> what are you going to hear from the pulpit? What are you going to hear from uh, your, the, the people who are put, placed into a position to teach the church about uh, this issue? Uh, which is not necessarily the same as where everybody in the church body is going is to be on the, on the issue. So where, what are you going to hear from your leadership? Well, we're somewhere in the, what I would say, on the conservative side of the continuationist spectrum. Somewhere on the conservative side of the continuationist spectrum. Personally, if you've talked with me, you've heard me say, 
that I uh, kind of classify myself as a reluctant former cessationist. Meaning, there was a point in my life where I had decided that I thought that the scriptures taught that the spiritual gifts, the miraculous gifts, had ceased. And then after some study of the scriptures, I reluctantly came to the conclusion, uh, I don't think you can make a good case for that. I I do think that the scriptures teach that the miraculous gifts continue. But I was reluctant. And you probably have maybe picked up that tone even because I have some uh, reservations and and, and some uh, things that I would kind of want to use to guard my position. So personally, that's kind of where I'm at. Positionally, here's how I would say it. We're open and wearing our seatbelt, in the words of Mark Driscoll. Open to the continuation of the miraculous gifts and wearing our seatbelt. Meaning that we believe that God can and does provide the church today with miraculous gifts and experiences. I believe that. And, I, and we're going to spend some time in, in, uh, looking at that, and I will try to defend that. I do think that's the best, most faithful scriptural interpretation. And we also believe that we should carefully run our experiences and our impressions through a heavy Bible filter. And I'll talk more specifically about what that means, what that looks like as we work through these chapters in 1 Corinthians. Okay, so let me start by saying, let me just give credit where credit is due. Am I on this thing right now? Okay, so I I need to keep, okay, that's good. Let me start by giving some credit to D.A. Carson. So I've been reading his book, Showing the Spirit. A lot of what I'm going to say is going to come straight from there. So I'm just kind of doing my citing up front. Uh, if you were to go read D.A. Carson's uh, Showing the Spirit, you'd be like, hey, he ripped all that, you know, Jeremy ripped all that stuff off and just set it in front of the church. I'm just saying up front, that's exactly that's what I'm doing. Uh, uh, also, I want to give credit to Wayne Grudem and his... Uh, Bible Doctrine book, which is kind of his scaled-down version of his systematic theology, and his book, The Gift of Prophecy, and also, as I've been using all throughout the First Corinthians series, I heavily want to give credit to Gordon Fee uh, and his commentary on First Corinthians. So I'm just trying to have intellectual honesty here. You can go read these guys. I'm not saying everything that I say, these guys would all support. I'm, I'll try to make specific reference when I'm, when I'm quoting them and so forth. Okay. So how does all of this relate to 1 Corinthians? Well, you may remember that in chapter 7, Paul made a little bit of a transition in his letter. Because prior to that, he's responding to issues that he has heard about from reports. But in chapter 7, he starts specifically responding to a letter that he received from the Corinthians. So in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says... Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, and he starts to go into a series of issues. The first one has to do with the Corinthians' belief that it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul says that brings a lot of trouble into the marriages. So uh, that's the first issue that he addresses from their letter to him. The second issue that he addresses starts in chapter 8. Now, concerning food offered to idols... And then in chapter 12, he hits another topic now, concerning spiritual gifts. So we're dealing with another issue that he's pulling from their letter to him. Now, we don't know for sure. Are these questions that the church is asking Paul about? Are these things that Paul's just spotting in their letter and he's saying, oh, that's a little bit of trouble. Perhaps it's a combination of both of those types of things. We don't really know, but we do know that spiritual gifts is the next topic in the discussion, and this little introductory phrase in 12.1, now concerning spiritual gifts, sets the whole flavor for chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. I want to look at three questions today, or I want to ask three questions today. These are just introductory questions to the whole topic of spiritual gifts, introductory questions to really chapters 12, 13, and 14. What I want to do today is fly over the woods. Just, just step back, get a big picture feel for these three chapters, and I'm going to do it by asking these three questions. What are spiritual gifts? That's a good one. Number two, 
what has been happening in Corinth that necessitates these three chapters? And then number three, what's the flow of thought in chapters 12, 13, and 14? So just big picture, what's going on here? I'm going to steal some of my thunder uh, for future messages by just telling you where we're headed, but I'm not out for thunder. I want you to understand this. So uh, I'm going to do my best to try to explain that. We're, we're going to, there's going to be a lot of questions that I'm not answering today, like what are the different spiritual gifts? What purpose do they serve? Are all of these gifts still valid today? Uh, we're going to go through this book for the next couple of months, and we'll try to unpack just a lot of questions. Everybody's got a lot of questions about that, and I think it will be enjoyable. Okay, so number one, question number one, what are spiritual gifts? Very generally speaking... I would say that probably the main text anticipating the phenomenon of the giving of spiritual gifts is seen in Joel chapter 2. This is the main text anticipating that God's going to gift his church. And this is where God has promised to pour out his spirit on his people in the last days. So the prophet Joel is an Old Testament prophet. And this is what Joel is going to... Just what Joel says is going to happen in the last days. It's, uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now this takes place at Pentecost which is 50 days after the Passover, where Jesus was crucified. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 2, and it begins a new phase of redemptive history, a new stage in the history of God's people. And it's a stage that occurs between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ, during which time God uniquely empowers his people with his spirit for the purpose of building up strengthening, edifying, growing the church body through the advancement of the gospel. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14 is the most extended passage dealing with that subject in the whole New Testament. So there's a lot of information here on this topic. And I want, as we get started today, to just make a couple comments about the basic concept of spiritual gifts. And I'll start by just giving you a, a definition that I'm taking from Wayne Grudem. And here's what Grudem says. Uh, here's the definition Grudem gives for spiritual gifts. If we can get it to pull, there it is. A spiritual gift, Grudem says, is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. A, a spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. I think it's a pretty good definition, and we're going to save some of the important elements of it for the weeks to come, specifically this idea of being used for ministry in the church. Um, would you click that to my next slide? Thank you. That's the one. Um, what I want to do is begin this part of the study by recognizing how broadly... Grudem defines spiritual gifts. How broadly he defines it. And I think that, not, not only how Grudem defines spiritual gifts, but how the Bible defines spiritual gifts. Pretty broad definition. And I think we can do that by just asking a question, then going to the scripture for the answer. And here's the question. What qualifies as a spiritual gift? Now, Grudem says it's any ability that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Any ability that's empowered by the Holy Spirit qualifies as a spiritual gift, Grudem says, as long as it builds up the church. Now, that's actually that's pretty broad, and the reason it's broad is because the New Testament doesn't precisely tell us what qualifies. Even the words that are used in chapters 12 to 14... Oh, there's... Okay, I'll get to that one in just a second. No, not quite yet, but that, but it's coming. Okay, the new to the words that are used in the New Testament and translated spiritual gifts in chapters twelve to fourteen of First Corinthians refer in other places to everything from the gift of marriage 
to the gift of eternal life to simply spiritual blessings. And the point is here that the words themselves aren't tightly defined technical terms and therefore they don't tell us exactly what constitutes a spiritual gift. You can't just do a word study on the Greek word translated spiritual gifts and get a clear answer for what qualifies. Additionally, cue the slide, the lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament don't give us crystal clear understanding of what constitutes a spiritual gift. For example, here you can see this is every list in the New Testament, including uh, this list down here, which Grudem includes. This is every list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. No list is identical. Actually, let's just read through these. So 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 11. An utterance of wisdom. An utterance of knowledge. Uh, the gift of faith. The gift of healing. The gift of miracles. Prophecy. Distinguishing spirits. Tongues. Interpretations of tongues. Now in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Paul gives another little list. The gift of apostleship. Prophet. Teacher. Miracles. Healing. The gift of helping. The gift of administration. That's interesting. The gift of tongues. Romans 12. Prophecy. The gift of service. The gift of teaching. The gift of exhortation. The gift of contributing. There's a a gift of giving. That's cool. The gift of leadership. Acts of mercy. Some people are better at this than other people. Ephesians 4, the gift of apostleship, prophet, the gift of evangelism, the gift of the shepherd teacher, 1 Peter chapter 4, various speaking gifts and various serving gifts, and then 1 Corinthians 7, 7, the gift of marriage, the gift of celibacy. Okay, none of these lists are identical. None of them flow in exactly the same order. There's not a total consistency here. And maybe even, most interestingly, there's a mixture of what I'm going to call ordinary gifts and miraculous gifts without creating that kind of distinction within the listing of the gifts. Ordinary gifts like the gift of teaching or the gift of service. Do you have to be a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit to be a good teacher or a servant? The gift of giving, leadership, the gift of administration. I'm calling these ordinary types of gifts. And then you've got these extraordinary types of gifts or these miraculous gifts. Prophecy, tongues, healing, miracles. Now interestingly, Paul doesn't make any distinction between them. He just calls them all spiritual gifts and puts them right next to each other. You've got... In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, the second one over, the second to last gift is the gift of administration. And then the last gift is the gift of tongues, which we'll define in, in, uh, sometime in the next couple months, uh, hopefully sooner than that. Okay, so what's the conclusion about this? You can go ahead and, and hit our slide. Thank you, Catherine. We shouldn't be too f- tight-fisted about defining what a spiritual gift is, about labeling spiritual gifts. Now, personally, I'm not perfectly confident identifying something as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that's not listed in the New Testament. I'm not perfectly confident doing that. So if somebody says, I I think I have the spiritual gift of dance, or I think I have the spiritual gift of cooking, or I think I have the spiritual gift of humor. Or, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not perfectly confident doing that kind of thing. However, neither am I going to deny the possibility that the Holy Spirit gives unusual giftedness to people to serve in the church body in ways that aren't explicitly mentioned in the New Testament. I'm, I, 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 I'm not going to deny that the person who's leading musical worship isn't, doesn't have some sort of unique spiritual gift to do that. So I, I, I'm not sure. Wayne Grudem is a little more generous than me. He's confident saying a spiritual gift is any ability that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. So he's, 
He's a little more generous than me. He's comfortable with that. That's okay because the text just doesn't make it perfectly clear. And I'm okay with that. But what I really like about Grudem's definition is that he recognizes that the spiritual gifts do not merely refer to inexplicable wonders. His definition is broad enough to encompass the teaching that the Holy Spirit empowers the church with both what we might call miraculous and ordinary abilities. And he's confident calling both of them spiritual gifts. So maybe that takes some of the spookiness out of the topic. And uh, we will say much more about this in weeks to come. Okay. So that's kind of a few musings on the question, what is a spiritual gift? Question two, what's been happening at Corinth? And I'm going to break this up into two pieces. One, generally what's going on in Corinth, and then specifically what's going on in Corinth that causes these three chapters. Generally speaking, in Corinth, the Corinthians have serious misconceptions about what it means to be spiritual. I don't know if you remember this, but in chapter 6, we saw that some of the Corinthians think that physical things have nothing to do with the things pertaining to the Spirit of God. As though God has concern exclusively for our invisible personhood, but he doesn't concern himself with the physical realm. He doesn't concern himself with things like our bodies. And therefore, the spiritually mature person doesn't need to be concerned about the physical realm either. And this mentality has actually caused quite a bit of trouble for the church regarding their sexual behavior. There's two instances in which this view of spiritual maturity has caused sexual uh, deviance. And on the one hand, what you have is some people who are having sex with prostitutes as a result because the body doesn't matter. So that's chapter 6, verse 16. Their spiritual maturity has led to some sort of bodily indulgence. Because the body doesn't matter. So bad view of spirituality leads to bodily indulgence. And on the other hand, you have some people, married couples, who are depriving one another of sex because the spiritually mature people should avoid the kind of physical interactions involved in sex. Chapter 7 verse 1 and following. And in this case, this idea of spiritual maturity has led to asceticism. So on the one hand, it's leading to indulgence, and on the other hand, the same view is leading to asceticism, denying yourself any sort of physical pleasure or encounter. Now, closely related to the misconception was the Corinthians' belief that spiritual giftedness was the sign of your spiritual maturity and therefore they're very eager for manifestations of the spirit in fact if you just want to take a peek chapter 14 verse 12 paul says with yourselves since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit and then he gives them instructions on what they should do in light of that eagerness so they they have an eagerness for manifestations of the spirit it's coming from this notion that the 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 greater the manifestation, the greater your spiritual maturity. And that's a misunderstanding as well. So, the general problem is that there's a general misunderstanding about spiritual maturity and there is a general misunderstanding about how your spiritual gifts relate to that maturity. That's the general problem. The specific problem that brings up chapters 12 to 14 is that one spiritual gift in particular, namely the gift of tongues, seems to have been exalted as the gift to have. This is the mark of your spiritual maturity. It's the mark of the spiritual person. And it's causing them, therefore, to look down on other people in the church who don't have the mark of maturity who don't have this gift. And as a result, there's a serious lack of love in the church because of the pride that's rising up because of those who associate spiritual maturity with this one particular gift, the gift of tongues. 
and some people don't have it. Now, by way of response to these issues, both the general issue and the specific issue, Paul has made it clear already that he has a very different view of spiritual maturity than the Corinthians. He doesn't dismiss the gifts altogether. In fact, he affirms their giftedness right as he opens the letter, which indicates that this is actually one of the main reasons he's writing this letter is because of this issue. So the first thing he does when he opens this letter is he affirms their giftedness because he doesn't want them to think that he's contra-giftedness. So he says in verse 5 that they have been enriched, and then in verse 7 he says they're not lacking any spiritual gift. So he's affirming that. But he doesn't equate that giftedness with spirituality, so he has confronted throughout the letter their notions of spirituality. He said in chapter 2, verse 6 and following, that his gospel is an impartation of wisdom among the mature. That is, if you're mature, you're going to perceive the gospel as wise. But the Corinthians are distancing themselves from Paul because his teaching seems what? Foolish. Okay, well what does that say about your maturity? If, if you think that you're mature, and Paul says, well the gospel is wise for people who are mature, but you think my gospel is foolish. What does that say about your maturity? So he's starting to confront their notions of maturity in chapter 2, verse 6 and following. And then he said that the things that he's teaching were taught to him by whom? The Holy Spirit. These teachings came to me from the Holy Spirit, chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. And those who are truly spiritual will therefore receive these teachings, chapter 2, verse 13. And those who are natural cannot accept the things of the Spirit, which does not bode well for a church who is rejecting the teachings of the Apostle and his Gospel. And then in chapter 3, he finally comes out and says exactly what he thinks. He says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. So he's setting spiritual and fleshly on two different sides of some great chasm. And he says, you're acting like flesh people, not like spirit people. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready for you are still of the flesh. You're not, spiri- you're not spiritually mature, Corinthians. You're infants. That's, that's what he's telling this church body who has misconceptions about their spirituality, who's looking for giftedness to define their maturity. Which brings us to the third question today. Um, what's Paul going to do in chapters 12 to 14 specifically to address that problem? And broadly speaking, he's going to address both this notion of what makes a person spiritual, and then specifically, he's going to address the issue of tongues and their role in the church body. And when it's all said and done, which is not perfectly clear until you get to chapter 14, he's going to do, I've got four things here that Paul's going to uncover in these three chapters. Number one, he's going to correct the abuse of the gift of tongues that's been taking place in their public assemblies. Um, There are two main problems with the way that they're using the gift of tongues. One is that it's disorderly, the way that they're doing it. But number two, this is the big big issue, there's no interpretation given for the tongue. There's no interpretation given. And that means it doesn't edify other people, it only edifies the individual. Now, it would be helpful to know what the gift of tongues is, but I don't, we don't have time to go into it, so uh, we'll cover it in a few weeks. But just know that the, the main issue is that there's no interpretation given for the tongue. The second thing he's going to do is he's going to say that the, in the public assembly, intelligible gifts are required. If it's intelligible, it's not for the public assembly. In the assembly, intelligible gifts are required. Number three, prophecy, therefore, is considered a higher gift than the gift of tongues in the public assembly because it's intelligible. 
It benefits believers and unbelievers. And then fourthly, in the whole process, he's going to define spirituality, he's going to explain the purpose of spiritual gifts, and he's going to put all of it in its proper perspective by saying, hey, at the end of the day, guys, gifts are not the most important thing. That's what chapter 13 is all about. So, flow of thought then. Here's what I'm going to do for the rest of our time today. I'm going to walk slowly through verses 1 to 3, and then I'm going to read the rest of the chapters, 12, 13, 14. So we can just fly over the top. And I think it will be really interesting. So, what's going on in 1 to 3? Let me just read through it. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, wherever you were, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we've already noted that Paul's bringing up this new topic now concerning spiritual gifts. And the word that he uses here for spiritual gifts, it's an interesting word, it's an adjective. Adjectives define, I'm sorry, adjectives, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Modify nouns. And the adjective here is the word spiritual. Now in Greek, you can take an adjective You can make it function as a noun. So how would you turn the word spiritual into a noun? Spirituality? And then you can make it plural, which is what he's done. So spiritual matters concerning spirituality, spiritual things, we might translate it. Our our translators, and actually almost every translation, says we're just going to supply the word gifts. Spiritual things or spiritual gifts, because clearly that's where Paul's going in the context. But it might be better to just kind of leave it a little more broad, saying now concerning spiritual things, because there's more than gifts going on here. There's a confusion about spirituality in general. But we can leave it as spiritual things. I'm sorry, as spiritual gifts. Uh, It's really... It's really um, uh, going to cover the vast majority of what Paul intends to deal with is the matter of spiritual gifts. I would just say as and also its relationship to your spirituality, something like that. And Paul says, "I do not want you to be uninformed about these things." Now concerning spiritual gifts and matters regarding spirituality, I don't want you to be uninformed. Because you are, right now, uninformed about these things. I don't want you to stay that way. I want to inform you. I want to help you understand the true nature of spirituality. Now, we just read verses 2 and 3, and you might be wondering... What in the world do those verses mean, and how do they have anything to do with spiritual gifts? So let's read 2 and 3 again. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Okay, what's going on here? The first step to understanding this, I think, is to understand that verses 1 and 2 go together to form one thought. Verse 1, I don't want you to remain uninformed about spiritual matters and spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters. Now, you have been uninformed. And the reason you've been uninformed is because of your pagan past. Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. When you were pagans, you were led astray. And the places that you went could not even speak to you. They could not inform you about the true nature of spiritual things, of spiritual matters. I don't want you to remain ignorant about this issue of spiritual gifts and spiritual Spirituality, you've come from a background that that did not inform you correctly about these kinds of things. 
And, and, and the idols that you went to could not tell you the truth about spiritual things. And I don't want you to remain uninformed. And this is all a setup for verse 3. And the setup is essentially saying, I'm going to debunk your uninformed pagan background view of spirituality. Where do, you know, where do our views of spirituality come from? Their views were coming from pagan background. We inherit these views of what we think constitutes spirituality. Where, do you, where did your views come from? Where did my views come from? Well, a lot of my views came from drug-induced experiences when I was first a Christian. When I defined spirituality, I thought in terms of like acid trips. You think that's a good idea? <laughs> where do you, you know? Where do you, where do your views come from? Where do, where does society's views come from? Oprah Winfrey, a lot of it, that kind of stuff. The, the, the Poltergeist movie. You know, we've got these influences, and it's just good to just kind of take a check and say, okay, where where did I get this from? Was it from the Bible? Was it from a Bible teacher? Was it from another religious background that I came from? It's just a good question to ask because. Uh, we might be presupposing things. And the Corinthians were. Had certain views of what they thought were spiritual. And Paul says, um, I, need to, I don't want you to remain uninformed. Now remember, they think the person with the biggest gift is the winner. Right? Gifting is the sign of maturity. Paul says, let's set it straight. Verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand... So verse 1 says, I do not want you to be uninformed. Verse 3, therefore, I want you to understand something. So here's the understanding that the Corinthians need to adopt. This is the proper way of assessing spirituality. No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Those who curse Jesus do not have the Holy Spirit. And those who confess Jesus Christ, those are the people of the Spirit. It's actually pretty simple. It's a pretty simple definition of spirituality. Now, don't get tripped up on this little phrase, confess Jesus as Lord, or, or, or uh, how does he word it? The Spirit of God ever said, okay, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Don't get tripped up as though this is saying anyone who utters the words Jesus is Lord is therefore in the Holy Spirit. Because that means any that would mean any unbeliever who reads this chapter out loud would therefore be in the Holy Spirit. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about a genuine confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a heartfelt, personal act of faith in recognizing that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord and God. Which means that the first thing that Paul does in his discussion of spiritual gifts is to identify what it means to be a truly spiritual person. And his answer is quite simple. Those who genuinely confess Jesus as Lord are the ones who have the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be spiritual. It's not tongues. It's not visions. It's not teaching skills. It's not Bible memory skills. It's not eloquence in your prayers. It's not your gifts. It's the Holy Spirit dwelling in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ that constitutes a spiritual person. Corinthians, Christians are spiritual. Christians are spiritual. And all Christians are spiritual. And it's a great move because it undercuts the notion that gifts in general are the mark of mature spirituality. He de-emphasizes gifts and emphasizes whom? Jesus Christ. The true mark of spirituality is the person whose heart and life are owned by Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. That's the true mark of spirituality. Now, the next thing he does is then affirm the gifts. 
So first thing he does is de-emphasize the gifts and emphasize Jesus Christ. Now the next thing he's going to do is he's going to now affirm all these gifts and he's going to do it in such a way that he makes sure that no particular gift, like tongues for instance, which is the issue that they need to hear about, is exalted over another. So now I'm just going to read. I'm just going to read, okay? And if you've got a Bible, you should follow along in your Bible. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone, in all the Christians. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Notice the emphasis is on God is the one who decides on these things and there's a variety of gifts. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to, to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are more, uh, I'm sorry, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Implied answer is no. Are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Okay, so there's a hierarchy here of gifts when it comes to the functioning of the body of Christ. And Paul's going to start to give us the hierarchy, but before he does... He says, actually, let me just make sure we know what's most important here. And I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, now he's not going to give the hierarchy yet. All of chapter 13 is a parenthetical, let's make sure we know what's most important. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and 
understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they're gonna pass, uh, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Close parentheses. Now, back to this desire, the higher gifts. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Okay, so... They have a love for tongues. Paul says, you should especially desire prophecy. Why? For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Again, intelligibility is what is key here. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinctive notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air, and uh, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also, if I have the interpretation. Okay, there's a lot of cool stuff we're going to come back to here and unpack this. I know I'm flying through a bunch of stuff, but that's okay. I hope it's I hope it's helpful here. Verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen? to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Okay, here's the maturity concept again be infants in evil but in your thinking be mature in in the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will i speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me says the lord thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will not say, will they not say, 
that you are out of your minds. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That is a very complicated section, and that's why I'm not going to teach on it yet. Why then, brothers, when you come together, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be one or two, let there only, let's see, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak. Okay, now he's going into prophecy. Uh, and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another, uh, to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, The context here is judging prophecy. So we'll come back to this. Uh, yeah, we'll come back to this. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Corinthians. Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul sets up his own, his own writings as the test. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy... And do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. It's so good to read big chunks. I hope that's helpful for you. Create some context and a big picture of the argument. It is the one who confesses that Jesus is Lord, who is spiritual. Let's start there. So we're going to start this whole series by making sure we understand our definition of true spirituality, the one who confesses that Jesus is Lord from the heart. Jesus is what makes you a spiritual person because it's only by the Holy Spirit that you could truly embrace Christ. And with that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and thank you for this church body and our time reading through your word and, and studying it and, and getting a, our bearings on this complicated but interesting few chapters. We ask, God, that you would take these things and mold them into our hearts, form us, change us, and uh, by your Spirit, Lord, make us greater people of worship and teach us how to use our gifts in a way that build builds up one another. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.